Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime Australian Detectives. I'm Adam Shand. This is where men and women tell their parts in the iconic crime stories of our times. Today, my guest is former Special Operations Group Officer David Empey. On March 7, 1993, career criminals Peter Gibb and Archie Butterley escaped from the Melbourne Remand Centre in the heart of the city. This was an ingenious plan devised with the assistance of a prison guard named Heather Parker, who was Gibb's lover. Using a small piece of explosive smuggled into the prison by Parker, Gibb and Butterley blew out a window and descended on a rope of bedsheets to the city street below. But things went wrong from the get-go. It's believed Butterley fell heavily and sustained internal injuries. They got to a getaway car containing firearms that was parked nearby. In their haste to escape the city, they crashed several times before stealing a motorbike to flee. A police divisional van intercepted them and a shootout with two members ensued. One of the police officers, Murray Trelaw, was shot twice and had his firearm taken. The fugitives roared off in the police van and meeting up with Parker, they switched to a previously stored four-wheel drive in Frankston and fled into regional Victoria. Gibb and Butterley were injured. Butterley was hemorrhaging and Gibb had a broken arm. They sought treatment at a hospital before hiding out in bushland for several days. Four days after the jailbreak, the trio arrived in Gaffney's Creek, 175 kilometres northeast of Melbourne. They stayed in a hotel and left the next day. Butterley had left blood in the room, so they decided to burn the hotel down to keep police off the trail. Detectives investigating the fire matched the description of Gibb and Parker with hotel staff, and a huge search operation began. It was at this point my guest David Empey comes into the story. David was one of the Special Operations Group members to track the crooks to the final showdown. They planned to lay an ambush, but that's not how it turned out. Dave Empey has lived to tell the tale. David Empey, welcome to Australian Detectives Real Crime. Amazing career you've had, but I'm trying to think in that siege or shootout with Butterley, Parker and Gibb, you're in no man's land. Correct. Describe what that's like for people who haven't been there. What's going on? (sighs) I'd like to say it would be it's absolutely terrifying, but that comes later. When you get caught in an ambush and you've got nowhere to go, you basically do everything in your power to survive, basically. And for me that was return fire on the ambushes, even though we were heavily exposed Just describe the scene. So we were conducting a search for a vehicle. Uh, We'd found the vehicle and our dog handler had picked up a scent which brought us out onto a gravel bank on a river. And the gravel bank was a couple of metres wide. Obviously we had the river on one side and 
impenetrable blackberries on our left side and nowhere to go behind us and then we had a wall of bush in front of us which also looked impenetrable. So we were basically caught out in the open. The whole gravel bank may have been only 25 metres long and we were about halfway down that bank when we were ambushed. So it was fairly close range, close quarters, even though you couldn't see who was shooting at you or you couldn't see them at all because of the cover they were in. You could see the muzzle blasts, you know, the muzzle flashes because I was obviously sitting in, in some shadow and you could see the little puffs of smoke and the little flashes of flame from the gun barrel. Did you feel the chirpers over your head? I got a couple of whizzes past my ear, so they were pretty close. You get the percussion blast from the passing round and they were pretty close because another officer with us, he got shot in the back of the leg and his leg was right next to my ear, so it sort of went past my ear and grazed him on the back of the leg because he was standing behind me as I dropped to my knees when, when they started shooting. So, yeah, it was pretty close. We were pretty lucky that we didn't actually get shot on the first shot. We are lucky, very lucky, but I think given that they had one shot and they missed, we made the most of our chances. I wonder what your trainers at the SOG would have thought getting caught in an ambush like that. I don't think we'd ever thought we'd be caught in an ambush because we talked about this at the debrief and normally it's us doing the ambushing. We don't train to be ambushed, we train to ambush. All our arrest tactics, you know, we either ambush or we enter under stealth with force and it's not something we'd ever considered that we'd be ambushed but we were ambushed and it changed the way we thought. Given that we'd all survived, we had time to, you know, go back and review our training and and actually work on things to keep us alive. Because this was the era when you had a class of crooks that were desperate, they were so anti-police and they were very happy to shoot at police, as we saw, or blow up police stations, shoot unarmed constables. Maybe the training should have taken that into account, do you think? Um, may, maybe. I, I, I think that was a different time to what it is now, but, yeah, I think the way the world was back then, uh, there were so many guns on the streets and not just old clunkers, there was military hardware available. There probably still is, but not as readily available. You know, you could get SKKs, SKSs, AR-15s, Mini-14s, all sorts of high-powered, effective semi-automatic, automatic weapons could be gained. That's the right. Street. The Special Operations Group and all the tactical squads, I guess, it's all about training. It's about muscle memory. It's about decision-making. In that moment when you're in an ambush, what's it like making decisions? What's the feeling? Basically, you just revert straight to an engagement drill. Because we couldn't see what who was shooting at us, you knew someone was shooting at you, so you just return fire. And because of the number of rounds they were firing and, like, I think they fired maybe 13 rounds at us out of an AR-15, but I'm not quite sure when they were fired. I know I saw two or three before I actually got my finger on the trigger. So I'm assuming that 
they'd missed us in the first two or three shots. They'd missed their chance because there was no way known your survival instincts sort of kick in and there was just no way known I was going to give up without a fight. And it, it's basically, it, it, it's it's kill or be killed, basically. Their intent was to kill us and my intent was to prevent that and the only way to prevent that was kill them. Um, well, I didn't know it was them at the time, but you assume it's one or more. We knew there were three people there. We didn't know how many people were shooting at us, but it seemed like a lot because there were a lot of rounds coming our way and in the initial part of the engagement, my intent was to get as many rounds into where I'd seen those muzzle flashes come from as I possibly could. This had begun four days earlier. Yeah. Where were you when you heard that Butterly Gibb had broken out of the map? What were you doing at the time? I think I was at home. It was Sunday night, I think, from memory when they broke out. And then oh, I think we were briefed that night. I don't think I was called in that night, but we were briefed. And obviously the, you know, the the escape was dramatic, explosives, they're armed, they're with a prison officer. They'd encountered Warren Trelaw and his offsider on the bridge. They'd taken his gun. They'd shot him. You know, there was a car crash, motorbike crash. It was just something you would see in a movie. And the ambiguity of the information initially, Heather Parker, prison guard, is she a hostage or is she an accomplice? Didn't yeah. quite know that at the beginning. No, no, you you weren't like, and it, it was sort of unbelievable that when we were, did find out she was an accomplice, it was just like, What? Because that complicates things at the beginning because three accomplices, you know the rules. A hostage, suddenly there's, a different, there's a different rule of engagement. How, how, how was that dealt with at the beginning there? Uh, basically, you know, if they have a hostage, then it's obviously you've got to secure the hostage rather than apprehend the offender. Well, you know, you've got to apprehend the offenders, but basically your primary concern is the safety of a potential hostage. That was the initial thoughts. I don't think I was involved in the initial, like I said, I knew about it Sunday night, but we weren't involved, I wasn't involved in that initial planning phase. We all just came to work the next day and then basically it was all hands on deck. And you're given a, a full briefing. Yeah. How much were you told about the offenders, their backgrounds, how they were armed, all this type of thing? Um, you were basically given a full briefing and, you know, Butterley was, wasn't was a very nice person, neither was Peter Gibb for that matter, and you you were briefed by major crime, homicide, et cetera, on all their previous record and they, they just didn't paint a very good picture of a great citizen. So you, you just basically thought, well, we're up against two very violent offenders who have a pretense to use guns and violence. So we knew we were up against. Archie Budley had already shot at the police once before in Brunswick when he was cornered by the dog in the tree. So you build a picture in your mind of what you're up against. And there was some intel that Butterley may have been injured when he was climbing down the sheet rope. <sighs> They're not quite sure whether he hurt himself falling down the rope or crashing the motorbike. But 
we knew one was possibly injured, but given their current status, they probably wouldn't go to a hospital or a doctor. And that sort of, once the arrest was made on that Saturday, it was, yeah, that was painfully obvious because he was in a pretty bad way other than being shot, but he, he was in a bad way. Other than being shot, yeah, yeah. that's true. You're facing villains like these. How are you equipped? Uh, look, we, 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 we were heavily armed. What did you have? Uh, I had a Steyr org, uh, just standard configuration, you know, military-style assault rifle and 9 millimeter handgun and uh, various other munitions, bulletproof vest. Again, this is what changed our tactics because we were wearing the tactical black in the bush, so we really did stand out, uh, whereas we should have been in camo gear. Um, and that changed our thinking for bush operations. So, you know, th- this whole incident brought about a, a big change in how we operated. Okay, so you set forth. How many in the team? Initially, when we went to Jamison, there was six of us. And the day we got the call, there was only two of us left. So four had gone in a helicopter. Sorry, four had gone in a helicopter to check out another siding. Obviously, the machine couldn't take everyone. So two of us were left behind, uh, Damien Hare and myself, and then we had our senior sergeant and our inspector as well with us. So there was essentially four of us. We've all got the same training. It's just that our two non-commissioned officer and officer were with us, and they generally didn't get involved in tactical operations and a dog handler, Trevor Berryman and his dog were with us as well. What's the dog's name? Seamus. Seamus, good. That's a good memory. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah. So, yeah. So this goes over four days. You're on the trail. What are the events that are, that are taking place that you're becoming aware of? So early in the piece, we were conducting house searches in Melbourne, forced entries with possible sightings and of known associates with no luck. And then I think the Gaffney's Creek pub burns down. Gaffney's Creek pub, I mean, talk about paranoia. Butterley's bled in there. Yep. So they decide to burn the hotel down to conceal his blood. I mean, I wonder if even the staff would have put it together. I doubt very much whether they would have. So that paranoia, in fact, creates a big red flag for us. So, And then there's they confirm that it was... The three, and it, it and it appears now that they are all offenders: Parker, Gibb, and Budley. And that was the key moment because at yep. that point she'd been possibly a hostage. Yep. Now the rules of engagement change. Yep. So we've got three offenders, three armed offenders essentially, because we know they've got Trelaw's guns, and we're assuming that they have got guns from somewhere else. We didn't know that they had the AR-15 or the pump action, but they're armed. So we, we can only assume that they're all armed. If you'd known they had the AR-15, would have that have changed anything? Oh, probably. But, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing and you can only go with what you've got usually. So, yeah. You know, and that did change the way we operated moving forward because you assumed and it, it had happened on a few jobs, you know, where you make the arrest and you would go, oh, they're more heavily armed than we are. 
So, and the, you know, one of the jobs that we were involved in the airport shooting of Normie Lee, Lee and Barchi and uh, Steve Asling, the getaway van had a tripod AR30 in the back of it with an SKK, and I think Steve Asling had a a 45 on him when he went through the windscreen, and uh, the other two had high-powered handguns. I think a Magnum. Or- yeah. 44. Which, which, which team were you on? In, in I was one? on the uh, I was on the observation team. That's a great job, that one. Yeah. George told me all about that one in another yep. podcast, which you can also find on Real Crime. So Gaffney's Creek Hotel, you get there, it's burnt down. What are the next steps from there? They decided that we needed to search pretty much every dwelling and campsite between Gaffney's Creek and Jamison. It was a long day and a half of searching and everything had to be treated as if it was going to be hostile. So, you know, we were working in four-man, three-man teams, entering caravans, holiday houses, just and and working our way back towards uh, Jamison. And we found basically nothing. How do you maintain focus where you're at a high arousal level all the time as you're doing all these entries and you don't know what's over the threshold and you're doing it over a long period, you, you start to get jaded and exhausted after a while. Oh, you can do jaded and exhausted between entries. So basically you have to come up for every entry. You can't be slack otherwise you'll get hurt. So you do jaded and exhausted when you get back in the car and you all fall asleep. And then it's basically next one, let's go, and it's move on to the next one. So, and I think, you know, we did jaded and exhausted that night because we, we were called out to German Spur as well. They thought there was a siding out there. So four of us went out there in a four-wheel drive and it was just like, oh, my God, if they're out here, oh, my hat's off to them. It was a really steep steep, rough road and driving around it in the dark and four-wheel drive was not much fun and we were tired. So then we went back. I think we stayed in Bonnie Dune that night and then we went back to Jamison the next day and set up at the police station and basically were just waiting because we figured we'd exhausted all avenues of inquiry along the river and there was nothing seen and then there was a possible sighting quite a way away, so they decided to take the helicopter and I think three people went in the helicopter and Damien here and myself with Paul Carr and Bruce Knight stayed at Jamison and Trev Berryman and the dog. So we stayed there and then, oh, it must have been mid-afternoon, we had a couple who'd been fishing on the river come in and said they'd found a white Pajero under a camouflage net parked in on the river and to their credit they'd actually pushed the Odo trip meter when they drove back into town so they gave us an exact distance from the police station to where the car was parked so we knew that we didn't want to go driving 21.5 kilometres and drive into the car park because we we might get a surprise. So basically the plan was that we stop a, maybe a kilometre or a kilometre and a half short on the Jamison Woods Point Road 
and it was decided that Paul Carr, myself, Damien Hare and Trevor Berryman would go to the car where the net was and Bruce Knight would take, I think, the Major Crime Squad or the Armed Robbery Squad and they'd be our backup team. So they followed us up and we, we searched a couple of car parks, you know, just little campgrounds on the river. So it was a lot of searching and sort of, you know, just clearing of areas so we didn't go over an uncleared area before we got to the car. And as it turns out, the last area we cleared before we went into the car, there was a little walking track on the Woods Point side, so on the upstream side of that campground. In hindsight, we should have taken that because we would have got the ambush then because <laughs> that led straight to their ambush point. And that we, we discovered that after they'd been arrested and the shootout had happened. But if I'd had a continued down that track because we didn't find the car and that was the objective, to find the car so we knew we were in the right spot. But if I had proceeded down that track, we would have ambushed the offenders. So what happened next? There was absolutely no sign of the offenders in that last campground, so we decided, right, we'll go back up onto the road. In that area, we left the armed robbery squad with Bruce Knight and Paul Carr, Trevor Berryman, Damien here and myself went up to the next campground and we conducted a search of that, found the car and it was buried under a camo net and driven into some tea tree. We did a bit of search around the car. We found a bloody rags and, you know, stuff to indicate that someone was injured and they were there. We conducted a quick search of the car. It was clear there was no one in the car and that's what we were looking for. We then decided to search upriver. Damien and I walked in the river upstream and did both sides of the bank. And Why in the river? Because you couldn't actually get up the river on the banks because it was blackberries and it was just too hard of going. So we figured, oh, if we go up the river, they may have actually got in the water and gone up the river. There was no sign up there. We came back uh, and then I think it was decided that we go downstream between where Bruce Knight and the armed robbery squad were and the car and clear that area. So the dog handler was in the lead with the dog and we found a little walking track, like just an animal track. And we've proceeded down that, and I can't remember how far down that, but the dog handler said, look, we've got a scent, get ready. Seamus was actually leading the operation at this moment. Yep, he was, and he was very effective. <laughs> so, and ever since then, I've just loved dogs. But he was out in front on a lead with Trevor. Uh, he said, yeah, there's a possible scent here, and the dog, got a bit excited and off they went and it was sort of a bit of a fast walk because the dog was moving quickly and then we've come through sort of heavy undergrowth out onto that gravel bank and we've got about halfway down the gravel bank and the dog stopped and put his nose in the air and Trevor's come back to me and he said they're really close because the dog's got a, a fresh scent so get ready 
as he said that, they've opened fire. So they're hearing this they, exchange. They probably heard it. So I don't know. Never talked to them, and I don't think we'll ever get a chance to talk to them because Gib and Buddley are both deceased, and Heather Parker probably would never want to talk to us. Waiting for a movie deal, maybe. I don't yeah, know. maybe. <laughs> anyway, they've opened fire. It's all happened fairly quickly from there on. I've opened fire, and to my knowledge, I think I was the only one opened fire because everyone else went for cover, and they all went for cover in the blackberries. I stayed on the riverbank for a short amount of time, but I think I may have fired... I may have emptied a magazine between the first engagement and getting into the water. Realising I was out, I couldn't come up and reload, so I was in the water, I rolled over in the water, popped my gun out of the water and discarded the empty mag and put another one in. So you were under the water? Yep. And this is the moment where you are fortunate that you know your weapon so well that it will fire after this treatment. Yeah. This wasn't part of your training, was it? No, no. But, like, we work with firearms all the time, so you knew you had to get the water out of the barrel if there was water in the barrel. Otherwise, if you went to fire with water in the barrel, you'd probably blow it up and possibly injure yourself. So that's why I put the gun in the air to drain it. And, I mean... It's easy to talk about it now, but you like this is all happening in milliseconds. And then I've sort of accessed another magazine, loaded up, actioned up, and come up out of the water on my knees and started firing again. And I think I might, might have emptied another magazine. And then I've gone to a reload again. I'm not sure if I reloaded again. This is because it's oh, a long time ago, but I think I think I may have been nearly out of ammunition and I chose not to keep firing because the firing from the other end had stopped. And then it, it all calmed down a bit then and then I saw Trevor over in the bushes with the dog. He had the dog he didn't have a gun out and Damien Hare was behind him and he was talking to him and saying, you're right, He's, like everyone was doing a bit of a welfare check to make sure we're all all right. You got one officer wounded? Yeah, but he was pretty calm and he said, oh, I think I might have been shot. Gone, uh, okay, are you okay? He said, yeah, I think I am. But he said, I'm pretty sure I've been shot. So anyway, and that is exactly how it panned out. It wasn't panic, it wasn't... You know, there was no yelling or screaming and running around with your hair on fire. It was that calm. He said, I think I might have been shot. And I said, well, you're right. And he's gone, yeah, I think so. I can't feel anything, but I feel like I've been shot. And he said, I've got a hole in my overalls where I've been shot, so I'm pretty sure I've been shot. And you've got a ringing in your ear because the same round yeah, passed very close to you. Because we had no hearing protection in, my ears were just ringing because I'd fired, you know, probably... 30 or 40 rounds, plus their 13 or 14 rounds. So it's all quiet, just all- the smoke clearing in this ambush scene. You don't know whether they've fallen back to another firing position or they're all dead. Correct. What's the next step? We basically just started calling on the position and I think in the interim they'd called the crew back with the helicopter so we just held our position there until backup arrived. And this has taken 
a little bit of time, you know, because they've got to get here. They're fast roped in. So the helicopters hovered over the road. They're fast roped down, made it. And John Taylor has come in down the river. Um, and he got onto the other side of the river to cover our downstream flank from anything coming in from across the river. So plus we also had the other team in behind their position. So we sort of had the area pretty well stitched up and we had crews up on the road. So really the only way out was the river if they wanted to go that way. Um, Once the other crews arrived, I talked to Craig Harwood. I said, look, I'm nearly out of ammo. Can you throw me a mag? So he threw me a mag. I had a spare mag with me then. And what we did then, we decided that we needed to get into that position and clear it. Couldn't move forward. We couldn't sit there all day because it may again end up in another shootout. So what we did is we decided to send the dog in first. So Trevor let the dog go. The dog's gone into the position. Well, I think we might have thrown a flashbang in first. There was covering fire as well. So grenade, dog, clear. And I couldn't go and clear because I was that cold from lying in the river. I couldn't actually move. The water's bloody cold. Oh, it was freezing. It was, <laughs> the water gets really, really cold. Lying in it for, I think I might have been in it for 20 or 30 minutes. Like I was still functional, but oh, I was cold. And I, I couldn't have got my legs to move fast enough to get into the position to actually clear it. So it was decided that Craig Harwood, Kerry McNamara and Damien Hare would go and clear the position once we'd carried out our due diligence, so to speak, to make sure we weren't going to be injured or anyone was going to be injured. So I covered, John Taylor and I covered the position. The grenade went in, no response. They were called on, no response. Dog went in. There was no response. The dog came back with what appeared to be blood on its muzzle. So we figured, right, there's someone in there, whether they're just waiting for us, but, you know. And Trevor said, well, I can't talk to the dog. He can't tell us what's there, but this is what's there. So... It was decided that we would approach the position but there was covering fire from Craig Harwood and I think once the covering fire was done, they moved in and that's when it was discovered Butterley was deceased. In the meantime, the other two had tried to escape down the river and they were apprehended by Bruce Knight and the armed robbery squad. You finally get your legs operating and moving out of the river and you get to see Butterley and I guess you're wondering what's happened. Yeah. Did I shoot him? What's happened? What confronted when you finally saw his corpse? Oh, not much. I looked at him and went, oh, well, we're, he's obviously dead. Looked at the firearm, so he was lying on an AR-15 with a mag in it. There was a bag next to him, I think it was a blue bag, and it had a pump action in it. Uh, a Browning pump action, I think, or a Remington pump action, and there was a handgun there, a police-issued revolver, and you have Smith & Wesson thirty eight. So, you think you've hit him from the front? Yeah. You can see a couple of holes in him? I can see holes in the and scuffs on his head where he's been obviously hit by two to three rounds. The bag is full of bullet holes. His position is full of bullet holes, so I was obviously shooting in the right position, and there's obviously a lot of blood because he's been shot in the head and there appears to be a lot of bullet damage to his head. But there's one particular bullet wound. Behind his ear. 
and I'm not quite sure how that got there. Well, we are now, but that, that just looked odd when we saw that. The conclusion was that this was the final stand and yep. that Butley couldn't continue. So what do you think happened? My, and it's only my opinion, uh, it's never been tested, I suppose, but and it was our opinion that he was either shot by Parker or Gibb because he basically come to the decision he was that badly injured. He didn't want to go back to prison, obviously, because he escaped and that was it. So I'm assuming that they'd come to the decision, he would be the trigger man to enable them to escape downriver. That didn't work because he'd missed and basically the amount of fire we put into the position basically made it untenable for both Parker and Gibb to stay there, I'd say. And I'd say one one of the, given that she's got the GSR on her hands. The I gunshot would, residue? Yeah, I would say she'd shot him. And she was never charged? Nope. I no. believe a homicide detective went up there for a number of months after that and spent most of his time fishing. Yeah. <laughs> there, wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of evidence to go on beyond what you saw at the scene. No. And Parker wasn't talking? No, no. So that's what we assume happened because the angle of the shot, it would be very difficult for Butterley to have shot himself, you know, with with where it had come from by the forensic examination. So it had to be from a, a third party. I think for most people to understand a situation where three individuals are so desperate. There's no plan here. It's just blaze away, try to kill whoever's in front of them and then get away. Yep. It was a hopeless plan. Oh, it's bloody ridiculous. I mean, I can't even understand why they went to such a remote area because they just stand out, you know. But like living in this area now, you just go, you're not a local. What are you doing here? Better to hide in town. Oh, you would have been way better off to stay in Melbourne or go to Sydney or go somewhere but not to the Victorian high country. Bizarre. Yeah. So how did you debrief on this? Well, we have, uh, there was a number. We had a debrief pretty much on site and then obviously Homicide Squad turned up, hand your weapons over and put your little blue suit on and off you go to the Homicide Squad and then we had a debrief after after the Homicide Squad at, our, at the old Russell Street offices that night on the Saturday night. So it was a fairly uh, informal debrief, but we'd already identified some deficiencies in our tactics and, and, and kit. So that came out at that debrief, which is great. You know, it improved tactics for the future and, and gear for the future. Even less chance for the crooks to get away. Yes. Was this one of the most dramatic moments in your SOG career? It was one of them. There was a few. There was a few, yes, there was a few. But it, it, it would rank up there as one of them because I think it's one of the only times that in the group's history that, A, we were ambushed, we were caught, not napping, but we, we certainly weren't expecting to be ambushed. Exactly. Because you'd only ever wanted to be in the Special Operations Group, hadn't you? That was yep. your... Yep, that was why I joined the police force. Yeah. Your old boss, Alex Christick, uh, he was with you at the major crime squad for a while. He said you were always headed for the headed for the hut hut men. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I still I still stay in contact with Alex. Yes, he always laughed about that. He was my old boss at Broadmeadows CIB as well. So yeah, yes, he often thought 
why do you want to go there? I'm going, well, well, because that's what I want to do. Why did you join the cops? To join the SOG. You know, most people join the police because they have a sense of what's right and, you know, they want to help the community. And I was no exception, I, you know. I think that's why you join, but you also want to join because of perceived or real engagements and I've always liked being at the pointy end and I thought the SOG was the pointy end and it is the pointy end and still is the pointy end. Sure is. And you're still at the pointy end of life. You're now flying helicopters. Yeah. How did that happen? Oh, just it it was something I'd always wanted to do but never got round to doing and um, when I was nearing the end of my career in the police force because I, I I didn't want to take promotion. I didn't think being promoted suited me. I'd prefer to be on the coalface forever. I, I just couldn't see myself doing what I was doing at 50 and I, I needed to actually find an alternative to what I was doing to keep me interested in a life really. That still had a bit of adrenaline attached to yes. it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like flying helicopters is rather benign. It's basically like driving a tractor, but you're in the air. And a lot of people perceive it as being um, exciting, and I suppose it is because not a lot of people get exposed to it. But at the end of the day, you're basically operating a vehicle which operates in the air. But most of my flying was agricultural flying, so it was quite low level, close to the ground, and, you know, it could be deemed as exciting. You could just step out if things got hairy, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could just walk away. (laughs) There's no one shooting at you while you're spraying. Yeah, that's that's certainly a plus because I think people listen to this, a lot of people, uh, I guess, look at careers like the Special Operations Group and it's about danger, it's about excitement, but people do get shot. Oh, yeah. And you came close to getting shot. What would you say to people who were thinking about this sort of a career, um, about the mindset, about the temperament you need to succeed and stay alive? I think you've got to be very calm and not prone to panicking, but also very resolute in what the outcome's going to be and be under knowing delusions that the outcome can sometimes lead to putting you in serious harm's way. So you've, you've actually got to be quite prepared to take dangerous situations calmly. But I guess also in these vivid, dangerous moments, the camaraderie and the support you give each other creates lifelong bonds. This, this is life yeah. at, a, at a higher level. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm still in contact with, I'm not everyone I work with, but there's three or four guys that I do stay in contact with regularly and irregularly from the group. So, yeah. Fantastic. No well, worries. thanks for coming on Australian Detectives, David Emping, and thank you for your service to the community. Oh, you're welcome. In 2005, Gibb was arrested for the burglary of a car dealership. Gibb died in January 2011, days after being beaten by three men at his home in Seaford. The attack began with a practical joke. Gibb had pretended to shut a young boy in a freezer. Executive producer Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer Jack Shand. This has been a real crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. 
listener.